Mayor Daly, Mrs. Daly, Catherine and Wayne, to all and each and every one of you. I'm delighted, very happy, and very pleased to be here, to be honored. Thank you. I grew up in rural Alabama, 50 miles from Montgomery, near a little place called Troy in southeast Alabama. My father was a sharecropper, a tenant farmer. But back in 1944, when I was four years old, and I do remember when I was four, my father had saved $300, and with the $300, he bought 110 acres of land. And on this land, we raised a lot of cotton and corn, peanuts, hogs, cows, and chickens. And it was my responsibility as a young kid to take care of the chickens. And I fell in love with raising chickens like no one else knows how to raise chickens. <laughs> now, I know as smart students, you're very smart. You're wonderful, gifted young people, but you don't know anything about raising chickens. Let me tell you what I had to do as a young child growing up in rural Alabama during the 40s and the 50s. I had to take the fresh eggs, mark them with a pencil, place them on the setting hen, and wait for three long weeks for the little chicks to hatch. I know one of you smart young leaders was saying, John Lewis, why do you mark those fresh eggs with a pencil before you place them under the setting hen? Well, from time to time, another hen would get on that same nest and there would be some more eggs. And you had to be able to tear the fresh eggs from the eggs that were already under the setting hen. Do you follow me? You don't follow me. <laughs> when these little chicks would hatch, I would fool these setting hens. I would cheat on these setting hens. I would take these little chicks and give them to another hen. I'd put them in a box with a lantern, raise them on their own, get some more fresh eggs, mark them with a pencil. Encourage the setting hen to stay on the nest for another three weeks. I kept on cheating on these setting hens and fooling these setting hens. And when I look back on it, it was not the right thing to do. <laughs> it was not the moral thing to do. It was not the most loving thing to do. It was not the most nonviolent thing to do. <laughs> but I was never quite able to save $18.98 to order the most inexpensive incubator hatches from the Susan Roebuck store. So I kept on cheating on these setting hens. We used to get that Susan Roebuck catalog, and those of you from abroad may not know, but we used to get this thick, big book. And some people call it the ordering book, and some people call it the wish book. I wish I had this, I wish I had that. And so, as a young child, I wanted to be a minister. I wanted to preach the gospel. So one of my uncles had Santa Claus to bring me a Bible, and I learned to read the Bible. And so with the help of my brothers and sisters and first cousins, from time to time, we would gather all of our chickens together in the chicken yard or in the chicken house, like you're gathered here in this room. <laughs> my brothers and sisters and first cousins would make up the congregation, and I would start preaching. And I noticed, Mr. Mayor, as I would preach, some of these chickens would bow their heads. Some of these chickens would shake their heads. They never quite said amen. 
but I'm convinced that some of those chickens that I preached to in the 40s and in the 50s tended to listen to me much better than some of my colleagues listen to me today in the Congress. <laughs> and as a, as a matter of fact, some of these chickens were a little more productive. At least they produce eggs. That's another story. Well, that's enough of that story. When I would visit the little town of Troy, Alabama, or visit Montgomery, 50 miles away, a visit Birmingham, a Nashville, or Atlanta. I saw those signs that said white men, colored men. I saw those signs that said white women, colored women. I saw those signs that said white waiting, colored waiting. As a young child, I tasted the bitter fruits of segregation and racial discrimination, and I didn't like it. I would ask my mother, my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, why segregation? Why racial discrimination? And they would say, that's the way it is. But in 1955, at the age of 15, I heard of Rosa Parks. I heard of Martin Luther King Jr. I heard Dr. King's voice on the old radio, and he inspired me. I kept asking my mother and father why, and they said, don't get in trouble, don't get in the way. But I was so deeply inspired by Martin Luther King Jr., by Rosa's Park, by the Supreme Court decision of 1954 when I was 14 years old in the ninth grade that I got in the way, I got in trouble. It was good trouble, it was necessary trouble. As a student, I started studying the philosophy and the discipline of nonviolence. Studying what Gandhi attempted to do in South Africa, what he accomplished in India. Studying Thoreau in civil disobedience. Studying the great religions of the world. Studying what Martin Luther King Jr. was all about in Montgomery. And the time came for me and others to start sitting in at segregated lunch counters. We sit in there in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion in Atlanta, in Birmingham, in Montgomery. And someone would come up and put a lighted cigarette out in our hair or down our backs, pour hot water on us. We didn't strike back because we accepted nonviolence as a way of life, as a way of living. We came to the conclusion that means and ends are inseparable. If you want to create the beloved community, the beloved society, then the way must be one of love, one of nonviolence. There's someone that told me when I was preaching to those chickens, sitting in, going on something called a freedom ride, marching from Selma to Montgomery for the right to vote that one day I would be standing here. I probably would say, you're crazy, you're out of your mind. You don't know what you're talking about. So I said to you as young people, as leaders of the 21st century, you must never, ever give up. You must never, ever give in. You must never, ever give out. You must keep your faith. Hold on to your dreams. Keep your eyes on the prize. I want to close, Catherine, by telling one little story. 
When I was growing up outside of Troy, Alabama, 50 miles from Montgomery, I had an aunt by the name of Seneva, and my aunt Seneva lived in what we call a shotgun house. I know what I'm talking about because I was born in a shotgun house. She didn't have a green manicured lawn. She had a simple, plain dirt yard. And sometime at night, you can look up through the holes in the ceiling in the tin roof and count the stars. When it would rain, she would get a pail, of some of us may call a bucket or tub, and catch the rainwater. From time to time, she would walk out into the woods and take branches from a dogwood tree and tie these branches together and make a broom. And she called it the brush broom and she would sweep this dirt yard very clean two and three times a week, but especially on a Friday or Saturday because she wanted that dirt yard to look very good during the weekend. For those of you who may not know what a shotgun house is, especially those of you from abroad, it's an old house in a nonviolent sense. It's an old house, one way in, one way out, where you can bounce a basketball through the front door and it will go straight out the back door. In the military sense, old house, one way in, one way out, where you can find a shotgun through the front door and the bullets will go straight through the back door. My aunt Seneva lived in a shotgun house. But one Saturday afternoon, a group of my sisters and brothers and a few of my fresh cousins, about 12 or 15 of us young children, were playing in my aunt Seneva's dirt yard. An unbelievable storm came up. The wind started blowing, the thunder started rolling, the lightning started flashing and the rain started beating on the tin roof of this old shotgun house. Mont became terrified. She started crying. She thought this old house was going to blow away. She got all of us little children together and told us to hold hands, and we did as we were told. The wind continued to blow. The thunder continued to roll. The lightning continued to flash, and the rain continued to beat on this tin roof of this old house. And when one corner of this old house appeared to be lifting from its foundation, my aunt had us to walk to that side to try to hold the house down with our little bodies. When the other corner appeared to be lifting, she had us to walk to that side. So we were little children walking with the wind. But we never, ever left the house. I said to you tonight, the wind may blow, the thunder may roll, the lightning may flash, Call it the house of America. Call it the house of Europe. Call it the house of Africa. Call it the house of Asia. Call it the house of Central and South America. We all live in the same house. We're one people. We're one family. We're one house. So I said to you tonight, as you continue down life's journey, Walk with the wind and let the spirit of the Academy of Achievement be your guide. Thank you very much.